I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Good evening and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. I'm Travis Dow. And I'm Pete Coleman from the Bohemian podcast. So today we have kind of a bonus episode, a kind of special episode. We did a couple of Ask Me Anythings on Reddit. Um, th- there's two subreddits we did one on, which is one is the Ask Historians subreddit and one is History subreddit. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, so Reddit is a large kind of social media slash forum kind of, it's, they call themselves the front page of the internet. I mean, it has, it has millions of users, so I, I don't know. I assume everybody's heard it, but well, not everybody well, you know, has. And I hadn't. You know, it, Travis, you came up to me and you told me, you know, this is something you, you, need, to, you need to take a look at. And um, I fell in love with it, especially the, the hist- Ask Historians uh, section. So, you know, I, it just was fantastic. There's so many people that know their stuff, experts in, in their fields, that you can pretty much rely on. You're going to get a, a pretty well-educated answer to a lot of your questions. Yeah. So, yeah, so Reddit is a big place, but um... – so if, when we talk about a subreddit, so if you go to reddit.com forward slash r forward slash askhistorians, or the same thing except that it has history at the end. So those are, those are the two subreddits. And, and both of those are a really good community of people. Like you said, they're, if you have any question about any kind of historical thing, um, you got you know professors, archaeologists, PhD, grad students, any kind of historians you want to talk to, and they all have their little flair, their little tag, what they do, what they're specialized in. And um, so, yeah, any question you got, I mean, you'll probably find an answer there, most likely, more, more often than not. So anyways, on Reddit, if you do an Ask Me Anything, they abbreviate it AMA, um, it's kind of a free-for-all interview where you can ask anything about anything. Um, so we did two. Rather, I did one with, with another user called Mr. Magic Alchemy. That's his. That's what he goes by, and that one in particular was about alchemy, occult, um, and magic. I think it was, and so I kind of did some. Well, we both did the alchemy questions, and then I kind of left the occult and, and magic stuff to him. And then on history, that was me and Pete, and we actually did an ask me anything more more specific to the podcast, like talking about yeah, the po- any any questions about the podcast in particular, and uh, anything related to it. And that was interesting because probably most of the folks there weren't listeners. So, it was, you know, they didn't know what we had covered or, or what our style was. But they had good questions. And I, yeah. and I think that they, they really uh, had an interest, which I think a lot of our newer listeners to the podcast uh, bring to the table, uh, that they, they may, might have known a little bit about alchemy and to a certain extent, but maybe not the, the depth of, of what we cover. So this was a really good opportunity for uh, folks to come in and ask Travis and myself questions about what we covered on the, our podcast for the past uh, six months or so. So yeah. it, it really was uh, um, it was good for us. So I think it was good for some of our newer listeners. And and uh, we'll and the other good part about that is some of these questions and and answers these these threads stick around for a while, so people can actually listen to them. They're still there, and I'll, I will link to both of them on uh, my website. 
So yeah, the, the, the questions and answers are still there. There's over 100 questions were asked between the two, between the two uh, AMAs. So yeah, that was, that was good times. If you do find your way to the Ask Historian subreddit, and if you see some guy with a flair, something like early modern alchemy and German and Czech history, that would be me. So uh, yeah, come, come find me. Ask me a question about Germany, Czech Republic, or, and above all, alchemy. So, yeah, let's, uh, we got permission to go through some of these questions. And there were some, some pretty good ones and, and some that we might not cover by itself in the show. Some we have touched on here and there. Um, well, you know, I think some of the questions that were asked numerous times, four or five times in, in, my, in my thought process here, that, that was asked was, uh, you know, whether alchemists accidentally, with the air quotes I'm giving you here, uh, made real scientific discoveries. You know, as listeners know by now, the answer is, Travis? Oh, yeah. Um, and I, we went over this, I believe we, we kind of went through this list in um, the first episode, probably, because this is, this is pretty awesome. Like, I, I wanted to make it clear that this is a history of science podcast. Yeah, well, we, yeah, we talk about the occult, too. But um, so I, I do like the history of science aspect of it. And so, I mean, we mentioned this before, but yes, alchemists have discovered many things, either on purpose or on accident or as part of the process to do something else, like create gold or the elixir of life. And among those things that they did was, um, for instance, Chinese alchemists created or invented gunpowder. Um, other alchemists invented ink, dyes, paints, ceramic, uh, which like porcelain in Europe, who we're going to do an episode on that guy that actually that did that. Yeah. I, I tracked him down. Um, cosmetics, going all the way back to Egypt, really. Leather tanning. Um, they discovered certain elements like antimony, phosphorus, zinc, um, all kinds of acid, you know, just to name a few, hydrochloric acid, um, also things like, like mercury oxide, glass manufacture, which I know we've mentioned a couple of times, preparation of extracts, obviously, liquors, obviously. Um, they invented the, the Bain-Marie, remember, uh, I think it was Mar- Miriam the Jewess? Yeah, that's right, yeah. Yeah, uh, medicines of saffron, like uh, Ghazali, I think was... One of the, and not to mention, we're talking also about uh, additions to to the scientific realm of astronomy. You know, uh, all the, the aspects that have come come with that, the tools and and the four telescopes. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. You know, so uh, you know, a, a way to get uh, to get better uh, horoscopes and astrology. They and you know they need a better star charts, um, but also distillation, obviously. And even depending on who you ask and, and how you define it, early periodic tables. So they, they noticed that some of these kind of elements, you know, had properties in common. So, yeah, a long list of stuff that was um, discovered either on purpose, you know, they were after something or, or, you know, improving a method or just completely on accident trying to do something else. So, yeah, absolutely. Well, I have another question here from one of our listeners. Um, I can certainly see how platonic form could relate to an idea like the Philosopher's Stone, but now I'm curious why they had the idea in the first place, and what is his background in history? Yeah. So why did people believe that you could even... What, where did they come up with the concept of turning lead into gold, right? And we've touched on this a few times. It It basically can be traced back to Aristotle, depending on what aspect of the theory you look at. So um, at, its, at its Aristotelian form, everything exists in the same four elements. So you strip those elements apart, and then you build them back together in a different way. So you can create any matter from any matter. Okay, that's 
that's one part of the theory. Then the other part that we talked about kind of in depth in, in Michael Michael Sedzivoy's episode was that if you mine metals, like if you mine copper, you see traces of silver in there. And if you mine silver, you see traces of gold in there. And that's just that's just naturally occurring in the ore, right? But so they believe that lead was just unripe metal. So in nature, everything eventually becomes pure gold, but it just takes thousands of years. Whereas, um, so basically lead was just not ripe yet. But they believe that in a lab, you can speed up this process. So it still might take a year, but you know they, they might cook stuff for nine months at a time. Other recipes were basically instantaneous, but um, they obviously didn't work or they were uh, creating gold lookalikes. But so so this, you know, they were wrong. I mean, the, the theory was wrong, but it was an empirical observation that they found in nature. So it was, you know, they came to the wrong conclusion, but it was definitely in nature. They, you know, if you look at ore, they saw trace elements of, of a higher metal in these in these lower ores. So they just kind of put two and two together. So Michael Sensevoy especially believed that the philosopher's stone was kind of like seeds or or some special metal that will ripen the other metal. So, you know, it's like the Midas touch. So you 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 know you mix it in with lead and it just instantly becomes gold. It's that it's that fertilizer that it needs. So yeah, it it's definitely, you know, empirical in a sense. One of our other questions that we had um that really kind of piqued our interest had to deal with the relationship between the alchemist and maybe their patrons. Uh, one of the questions comes across to us. Um, I'm sure it varies from culture to cu- culture and and likely from instance to instance, but please correct me if I'm wrong. I'm assuming most alchemists were funded by their rulers. So since we know that some of these alchemists were trying to be to do the impossible, um, what did the alchemists or their patrons do to justify their patronage? Um, did they fake results or was really the transmutation uh, one of the many tasks that they had to do to prove their salt, if I can use that? Phrase. Yeah, and and um, to kind of paraphrase my answer here, so um, it's really easy to be a charlatan once you have credibility. And we have several examples in, in our podcast yeah. of, of those type of charlatans. Don't so we? because it took a lot of gold to make gold, um, and it took a lot of time. So if you're promising somebody, you say, "Give me gold now, and in nine months I'll give you a vast, you know, thousandfold return on your investment." Um, you know what? king or prince that had a little bit of gold to spare wouldn't be interested in that. So it was, yeah, charlatanism eventually did give alchemy its bad name. So clearly a lot of that, you know, some of them were charlatans from the beginning. But uh, that being said, um, we also mentioned people like Tycho Brahe and, um, you know, he was a nobleman, basically. Rudolf II was an alchemist, or he had an alchemist lab, you know, the Holy Roman Empire emperor which we mention all the time and they truly believed it so and not to mention that that in like for instance in rudolph's case but in many many others um yeah they were patrons of uh these alchemists so you know rudolph the second the court alchemist was michael Tenzivoy that we mentioned before so um yeah clearly there, there was emperors out to pay alchemists to make gold and i've read a lot of recipes 
I wouldn't, you can interpret this one of two ways. So I've read a lot of recipes and we'll bring this up in a future episode here pretty quick, pretty soon, but many ways to like gold plate something or to make something even silver, you know, mixing it with, with some kind of alloys to make it look yellow or copper look yellow, like think brass, something along those lines. So, you know, in many ways, if it had the look and feel of gold, it was gold. I mean, there was, you know, there wasn't there wasn't any electron microscopes. There was, you know, clearly the the touchstone test and all those things. But, you know, for all intents and purposes, if it looked like it, if it, you know, was heavy and kind of did the trick, yeah, it, you know, sometimes that was actually what they were after. So they just said, okay, I'll, I'll give you this much gold. I want you to triple it, and they did that. Now, obviously, in a real sense of the word, they didn't. But yeah. you know, you know, Travis, one thing that that always it really kind of always resonates in my mind was how much this was a mutual self-interest relationship between both parties. Um, you would have uh, an alchemist that wanted the safety of court life and the money and the the lodging and the food. Um, the medieval times were a rough place to be, uh, and the sure. better, better place to be was inside the court uh, of, of the Holy Roman Emperor or some kind of king or potentate. So they had their motivations to stay and do what they could by, you know, uh, by trick or, or whatever, what they could do to, to make their stay a little bit longer. And at the same end, on the other end of the spectrum, you had the emperor or the king or the potentate themselves that knew that if this guy really had the, the, the magic Midas touch for transmutation to make something worthless into gold or something like that, then um, then do you think that he would have let them go so they could spread that? Because that, once you right. take a raw material and you make it ubiquitous for everyone, the 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 the, the, the wealth go, drops, yeah. right? So they weren't going to ever let them go. And yeah, there were several <laughs> kings or, or princes that would ban all alchemists and then secretly search them up and, and keep them. So it was... Yeah, for well, exactly we, what you said. Like we, we mentioned you know, this on the Bohemian podcast. The, Re- remember yeah. in the Prague Castle um, that uh, it, I think it was Rudolf, Rudolf II, um, Emperor Rudolf yeah. II. He kept them locked away in in yeah. one of the towers in Prague Castle to the point where they revolted and rather chose death <laughs> yeah. than, than to be subjugated as as alchemist slaves to try to make this gold for the king or for the emperor. And um, they got what they wanted. Actually, they all they all were put to death. So. <laughs> um, you know, it, it, I think at some point, I think that probably hits a nail on the head that it was a mutual self-interest relationship between all parties. Yeah. Remember, remember Doc Reggio begging to the Pope to let him be in. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. clearly, you know, if they, if they didn't need funding, then, uh, they could make gold on their own, but they needed that funding. So they're like, look, I got tons of secrets and, and, uh, infinite wealth, but I need a little bit of money to make money. So absolutely. Here, here's another question I thought was, was interesting, uh, Travis. Uh, was wasn't alchemy thought to be a metaphorical condition, not a literal condition? And to my understanding, alchemy was the process of preparing one's soul and mind for what lies ahead of it, not for the literal trans- transition of material into something else. So it had a maybe a metaphysical sort of um, concept or construct to it, didn't it? Yeah, I'm not sure we've ever talked about this head on. Um, it's pretty heavy. Well, <laughs> we, well, we, no. I mean, I, I have my thoughts on it, but um, I think we've kind of skirted the issue because even on my website, I say, okay, so there's medical al- medical alchemy, there's practical alchemy, and there's spiritual alchemy, and that's not actually true. So, spiritual alchemy, um, there's no okay. Where, where that idea comes from is that in much later times, people would look back 
people like Carl Jung and and um, other people in the you know 19th even 20th century, maybe a little before that, and they would look back and say, you know what, they weren't actually after gold in a physical sense, and they were. Let me let me be clear, they, they absolutely were. But some people look back and, say, and they kind of reinterpreted history because when you get into this Neoplatonic and, and Hermetic um, writings, there is a lot of meditation there, okay? And there is a lot of, um, you know, as your gold is smelting, you need to contemplate God and, and do these things. So there's definitely a spiritual side to it. But I would say no, that they were, that if, if they're an alchemist, they were after either some kind of elixir of life or the philosopher's stone, by definition. Um, if they were just a neo Neoplatonist or a hermetic, um, you know, some kind of uh, believer or, or something like that, then um, that was more either religious or occult-based or um, whatever you want. And those people were out there too. But alchemists were always after those things. And when you read the readings, it is, it is really easy to interpret it a different way. But I would say that's misplaced. Would you also say, Travis, that because of the time and location of some of these alchemists, especially in Europe, that these guys were looking at um, their own survival because alchemy could easily be termed as witchcraft in certain courts or certain parts of Europe at this given at a certain given time in the Middle Ages, that they had to incorporate the religious aspect or the metaphysical aspect that related to the church so they weren't burned alive and they could continue doing what they're doing. I can think of a couple... Uh, uh, biographies that we touched oh, yeah. upon where yeah, yeah. this is what happened. So you cu- you're kind of reading between the lines a little bit. Um, yeah. Maybe these guys really did believe in this, but I think that they had to cover their tails so that they would have a really bad fate because what they were practicing could have been considered well, black magic. Yeah, I think yeah there was this popular perception of um, stuff that's going on in the lab was not holy, was not natural. So there was actually many alchemists that would flat out say including Dr. Reggio. He's like, right. this is all, he's like, I will grant you superhuman strength powers and you can see the future. And I mean, he prob- he promised every comic book hero superpowers I've ever heard of. If God wills it. If God wills it, <laughs> right. A. And second, it's all natural. So it's all herbal. So yeah, they, they were dancing this fine line and the public perception was that they were doing something unnatural. Um, I just, I want to give the answer to Mr. of Mr. Magic Alchemy's response. Uh, he was the other guy doing the, Al- the AMA, the Ask Me Anything on, on this particular question. And um, he kind of looked into uh, the 19th century occult revival a little bit in more depth than I have. So we kind of, in the History of Alchemy podcast, we stop there. We, we don't want any part of that. We kind of stop with Newton and maybe a, a couple of people after Newton, but definitely the 18th century. So anything that comes after, we don't care about it. Whereas Mr. Magic Alchemy, um, that's his username, uh, he actually he looked at some of these things and uh, he basically concurs with what I said. So uh, his answer was, and I'll quote it, he said, that interpretation of alchemy, so we're talking about spiritual alchemy again, that interpretation of alchemy is largely the product of revisions that took place during the 19th century occult revival in con- conjunction with Carl Gustav Jung's, right, oh yeah, Jung, yeah, um, his psychological interpretation of alchemy in books such as Psychology and Alchemy, Alchemical Studies, Mysterium, Conjunctionis. Um, so keep in mind, there was no Jung in the Middle Ages, okay? That, this is what he says. So alchemists did not think of their work in terms of consciousness or unconsciousness. So they are more often than not describing actual glassware and laboratory processes. 
And yeah, I've read some of Jung's stuff and um, it's all great if you're into psychology and you want to look back in history and, and find something that fits, that fits your theory. Okay. But he read into a lot of stuff and we, uh, if you're a listener at all to the show, you know that we're talking about actual chemical processes. We're talking about actual lab equipment. We're talking about actual recipes to turn lead into gold, for example, and even if they don't work, these guys were clearly in a lab getting their hands dirty. And um, the spiritual alchemy things, we did an episode on hermeticism. We did an episode on Neoplatonism because that's a huge part of it. A, a huge part of it. I mean, un, among certain alchemists, especially in the 4th century Alexandria, that's a huge part of it. So like we said, they would meditate next to their hearth and, you know. So yes, there's that aspect, but no, alchemy, al- alchemists were not sitting around in, in drum circles um, <laughs> and, uh, yeah, just, you know, trying to find nirvana. No, they were after gold or they were after the elixir form. Well, this might lead us to, the, to a nice segue to the other question that I have. It, it might sound a tad bit out there, but how exactly did numerology tie into alchemy, Travis? Okay. Yeah, in a lot of ways. And I don't know if I wanted to stick to numerology here, but but um, let, let's start with that. So, because um, we're about to do an episode on the Kabbalah here pretty pretty soon. But numerology, you know, if you just think of of significance and numbers, so there's always seven metals, seven heavenly bodies, you know, that they knew of, right? Um, you have the four elements plus the the tria prima, like you know, the 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 mercury salt sulfur, basically. So that that adds up to seven. Then we did kind of mentioned Kabbalah here or there. I'm, I'm going to kind of skip over that because we're going to actually talk about it in depth. But, um, you know, you get into these alphabetic systems where where words, where letters have a number associated with them and these numbers have power again. So by looking at a word, you can, you know, see how powerful it is. It's, you know, it's several layers of hidden meanings. And we had, um, who was that? Was that Sazamos of Panopolis? Who every single letter just had, so many meanings, you know. We talked about Ramon Lul um, and his, well, kind of a, the basis of Christian Kabbalah later on. So the the letters corresponded with the dignities of God, corresponded with the four elements. So th- there's a lot of things you can get into. Obviously, we have um, Thomas Aquinas, who we haven't done an episode on yet. It's it's about time. We've mentioned him several We've times. We've mentioned him a lot. We've yeah, got but a, he deserves a, his own episode. Oh, yeah. Um, so he created a language for talismans. John D. invented angelic alphabet, and uh, you know I got the dictionary at home. I was going to say you have that book, don't yeah. you? Yeah. Right, maybe we should cover that book on one I, of our podcasts. I was reading through it. It is just it's garbage. It's a dictionary. It's oh, just well, you can't gibberish. Read, you can't it's, read that on the. Why don't we bring in a dictionary of Klingon <laughs> into the? Yeah, it's just it's there, just. Listen, there might be listeners out there for dictionary of Klingon. No, so I don't, don't want to bust good. on those that's guys. <laughs> uh, I'm just saying that. But no, you're right. Probably that's terms probably of the alchi- best material. In terms of alchemy, it'll do us as much good. It's just yeah. you know you have an English word and the next to it is some gibberish and an, and an angelic you know quotes, uh, air quotes alphabet that you know just he thought gave him special powers you know special abilities. So we will do an episode on John Dee, on Kabbalah, and Thomas Aquinas. I, uh, I, I promise that those, those three especially will happen. So, um, and then numerology, numerology in general, I think we'll, um, we'll also do Christian Kabbalah as a separate episode, um, like Johann Reuchlin and uh, some of those guys. And there's more. The problem is, is that Different alchemists had different beliefs. Almost, there's a, as many beliefs as there are al- alchemists. 
So we try to cover some of our bases by covering Neoplatonism, Hermeticism, and then now Kabbalah and Christian Kabbalah, um, because because there's a there's a number of alchemists that bought into these things. But some of these, like John Dee, it was basically him and Edward Kelly. You know, it was like two guys, and no one else really bought into it. So um, Thomas Aquinas, I don't know who actually bought into his language for talismans. It's really interesting. We'll talk about it. But there's many many others that. You know, like Zazamos of Panopolis, we skimmed over it because he has an in-depth system, and it's just not interesting in a wider context. It's interesting, but not in a wider context. So when we talk about history, we talk about we go back really, really far in the show. Um, there are some things that 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 come out as as historical fact because subsequent generations later wrote it, finally wrote something down. That was maybe an oral history, word, word of mouth, passed from one person to another. And one of our listeners actually had a really good question that dealt with this, talking about the extensive records alchemists uh, either kept or didn't keep, uh, the processes that they had, uh, the successes, and their failures. Do we know, Travis, what attributed to their failures or successes in, in some of their experiments? Huh. Uh, well, what comes to mind, without reading what I wrote here, um, Successes? Oh, yeah. Everybody said that they were successful in some ways, and many were. Like when it comes to gold plating or, uh, you know, creating certain acids or um, aqua vitae, which ends up just being pure alcohol, right? That was, um, who do we talk about? That was uh, Villanova, Arnold de Villanova. Well, you know, it goes to the, so, the, old, the old Latin adage, if I, if I don't mess this up here, uh, <laughs> is the idea that um, success has a thousand fathers. But failure is mm-hmm. an orphan, right? So well, we only hear about the really good stuff. No, what, what I was going to say was, is that everybody writes about their own successes, and they write about everybody else's failures. Sure, prop themselves up. There is a <laughs> lot of smack talking, and and I think we mentioned this in a few episodes too. So if you read like Paracelsus, he's just mocking everybody else, um, even even Albertus Magnus and Thomas Aquinas. I mean, he's just putting everybody else down. Um, so everybody would be quick to point out other people's shortcomings. So, you know, did they, we do know about charlatanism. So is that a failure? Maybe, maybe they weren't charlatans in the classic sense. Like maybe they tried to create gold and they failed and then were seen as a charlatan and put to death. That's possible. But everybody claimed to actually have done it. That's the thing. But you're, you're exactly right. I, we have so many characters that we've talked about on this show that were, were saying that guy, that guy was a charlatan. I'm the real deal. And here's my proof of it. And that's just, it's over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, to give the answer, I actually wrote on Reddit, because there's a couple of funny stories here. Um, with phosphorus, for instance, the way it was discru- discovered was a guy called Henning Brandt, and he evaporated his own urine until what was left was basically phosphorus. And he described the process, okay, so this, we, have, we have the record. That, that's one of the things they ask is, do we have records? And yeah, we do. And... Um, even though he actually threw most of the phosphorus away. So now we can actually go back to his records and say, oh, man, if he didn't throw the salt away instead of just keeping the liquid, he would have had 100 times more phosphorus. So instead he had to burn 100 times more urine to get what he got. But he was just delighted. I mean, he was just ecstatic that he actually found some, you know, phosphorescent material that kind of, you know, illuminates a little bit. I mean, to an alchemist, this was, you know, possibly better than gold. So, um, yeah, we, we, we can actually backtrack his process and say, oh, man, he shouldn't have thrown the salt away, for instance. Um, another example, and I couldn't remember who this was, but um, 
talking about the scientific method, there was someone that did a very careful five-year experiment with a tree sapling. He carefully weighed the dirt before and after, so before five years and after five years. And then um, based on the weight, based on the, the, the weight before and after, he concluded that a lot of the nutrients came from the air. So, which is very cool. So the tree grew, but the dirt stayed the same. So he, you know, came to a scientific conclusion, and um, that's fascinating. So we actually have a experiment being written down that's reproducible, and you know anybody can can verify this in their own terms. And it came to a correct conclusion. And this was in medieval times. So this was before the Renaissance, before early modern times. Um, so oh yeah, absolutely. We we do have records of their processes. Uh, some are very vague. I know that I wanted to give a couple of concrete examples because um, probably 90% are talking about, uh, you know, the red dragon and marrying the red man with the white woman. And uh, you see pictures of crows and white eagles. And, you know, so a lot of it was, was murky. Like you said, they had, to, they had to, you know, cover up a little bit to not get persecuted. So a lot of it is, you know, you can't actually tell if they were onto something or not because it's just so murky we have no idea what they're talking about but on the other hand some yes we some records are pretty clear and definitely scientific the governments generally endorse the al- alchemical practices and uh, to what extent do you think they benefited from the from the profit of this useful research and really kind of getting to the second part of the question from one of our, our listeners, uh, was this mainly determined by the extent of the parallel relationship the governments had with maybe the Christian power that was in place at the time? Yeah, and, and that's a very broad question because like we, like we said before, so it went everything from being condoned or inviting alchemists in to uh, being completely outlawed. And at one point it was believed that all the gold coins of England were, you know, for instance, created of alchemist gold. So at one point they believed it was so prevalent that all the gold in England was alchemist gold, even though, you know, it clearly wasn't. So, you know, some completely outlawed it or some were worried about inflation because they definitely believed in it. Um, So like we said before, they would outlaw it and then secretly hire their own court alchemists. Again, it was a huge expense. So when you ask about you know, did they benefit from it? Uh, probably less so. Not in ways that they expected, if so. Uh, as to be aligned with Christianity, that's really hard to say um, exactly because some of these alchemists were actually inside the church as monks. Um, some were erroneously believed to be alchemists, like Albertus Magnus or Thomas Aquinas. They weren't alchemists, but people thought they were. So, um, it definitely had a role in the church. We mentioned Doc Reggio that actually went to the Pope. You know, so it, it didn't go against Christianity per se. It was thought to be science, and the, the dichotomy between science and, and religion did not exist the way we think it, or maybe the way it does today, let's say. Um, it just, you know, in medieval times, uh, all priests believed in Aristot- Aristotelian science. Things went so, hand in hand, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So th- it wasn't... It wasn't like today where you say, okay, is the school going to teach evolution or creationism? They didn't have that there. There was only creationism, and um, so there was only Aristotle that they looked at. Even the Pope believed that Aristotle was right. So, I mean, there was just no doubt that science didn't go along with Christianity. So um, it, it's hard to answer that question the way that it was meant. But I will say that in the Middle East, alchemy was actually endorsed and taught openly. So, and actually by, by very high um, people right beneath the imam or right beneath the caliph. So it was actually taught in university and uh, 
but I'm more referring to medical alchemy. So more along the lines of Elixir of Life, more than the Philosopher's Stone. Uh, but Al-Razi had, you know, several, which actually he's coming up pretty soon too, an op- episode on him. And um, he had several recipes that were very black and white, easy to follow, um, ways to make gold, which we're actually talking about turning silver yellow and turning copper yellow and that kind of thing. But he was very open about it. He's like, you want to turn copper yellow? Here's what you do. And um, that was openly taught. Everyone knew about it. Those works were translated to Latin and and went throughout Europe. So it wasn't, I would say it was more open in the Middle East. I mean, clearly it flourished a lot more there, especially in the early medieval days. So... Yeah, complicated answer to a simple question. Okay. But. Well, you know, that leads us to a, another question, you know, a question that uh, comes from one one aspect of the scientific t- scientific method to the idea of teaching chemistry. There, One question has to offer this, that they've heard chemistry teachers in class say that alchemy is the father of modern chemistry. Uh, how much truth would you place in this statement? Yeah, so the way I answered that is if you ask me, Okay, if you're asking my opinion, that's the whole premise of this show. So it's true 100%, okay? So alchemy was way off the mark. They they would not have, you know, clearly wrong preconceptions and, and wrong science, but you would not have chemistry without alchemy. And I fully believe that. I mean, everything, I've never not read anything that doesn't support that. Chemistry did not happen in a, va- in a vacuum. Yeah, if, you know, there was some, some chemists... Oh, I can't remember who, who now. But uh, they did something really crazy in a lab, and he's like, oh, man, this is like straight alchemy. And the other guy was like, dude, shut up. You're going to get us fired, you know? I mean, and um, so, yeah, so much lab equipment was invented by alchemists, uh, chemical compounds, you know, d- d- really some of the first descriptions of certain minerals. And, you know, I don't want to say mo- molecules because they didn't know what those were, but but definitely, you know, minerals and, and mixed element um, compounds, you know, call it chemical p- compounds, and even some elements themselves were first described by alchemists. So absolutely, alchemy is the father of chemistry, no doubt about it. Now, this is kind of a, a question that kind of takes us down a different road here, Travis, but in what ways did the invention of the printing press affect the evolution of alchemy in Europe? And and, and a couple other questions that relate to this. Did it hasten the change from alchemy to chemistry and from astrology to his, to his to astronomy? Yeah, that was a really interesting question. I had to think about that one for for a, a second here. So I first had to had to think about because he he also asked about like telescopes and microscopes and these things, and um, I had to think about okay, so when were those things invented, and what stage was alchemy in at that time? So the printing press in particular helped astrology and alchemy, and, and had nothing to do with chemistry for a while. So I think what the the person is implying is that. With these new gadgets, people started to go to real science instead of this uh, kind of occult-based uh, mythology, and that is that is not true. See, so I, I would have thought that would be true. Yeah, no, that is not true. So again, we've covered this like many times that chemistry was advanced to create gold. Astronomy was advanced to create better horoscopes. Simple as that, not the other way around. So... Uh, optics helped astrology. So uh, obviously I'm not mistaking astronomy and astrology. I'm saying optics helped astrology. So, um, Well, you know, if, I, if I can interject here, this, this is important because we, we mentioned this. We talked about uh, certain courts and imperial courts that the, the idea of, of, of astrology was super important 
for these princes and potentates and kings to make decisions in their kingdom. Yeah. So not so much the idea of, of astronomy about knowing how far the earth is away from, from the moon or those type of things. Yeah. It was more about does this alignment give me the right to invade this other nation state or do I make this decision for my people? So, so what you're saying, Travis, is right on the money that their, their want and focus for astrology um, or based on alchemy to get uh, more power or become richer – was much more important than the idea of, of what we consider basic foundations of science. Yeah, yeah. I, I, like, I don't want to be tongue-in-cheek or controversial, but but absolutely. So astronomy was the means, astrology was the ends, right? So um, people wanted better star charts, mathematical systems, to predict where the stars would be for better horoscopes. And um, this might sound controversial to some people, but it's pretty clear. I mean, it's definitely that's what that's what happened the money was with the kings the money funded astronomy to know whether they should go to war or not or whether they could expect a bad famine or not so absolutely um now some of these scientists maybe did not hold that belief like kepler right but um Kepler did not believe in horoscopes i don't know i mean that we mentioned that in the, in the episode and brahe might have been kind of maybe a little more but not as much as people often think. I mean, he read them. They were both really good at reading them because they were just acute observers of human nature more than the stars. So, yeah, it's just... Uh, we, we talked about the story before, but it, but it's really interesting when Tycho Brahe wrote a horoscope for the Danish prince, uh, Alexander. He wrote a 70-page long horoscope, but the first 25 pages were an exact star chart with exact, you know, the positions of the planets and his methodology for getting there. So there, there could be no doubt that what follows, namely the 50-page horoscope, is accurate. So the science was a means to the kind of astrolog- astrological or uh, alchemical ends, not the other way around. So the printing press um, just spread these ideas of alchemy faster, further, and these ideas of, of astronomy and astrology at the same time, that's, that's not what the person was implying. So he was saying, saying, so did the printing press bring us out of the dark age? And that's just, well, there is no such thing as a dark age. Um, I, know, I know you say that. There's probably a lot, there's probably some people that probably would disagree um, with you on that, but, and also a lot of people okay that would that agree. I'm okay because and, they're wrong. So oh, I understand. Oh, I know. Yeah. Great. Um, <laughs> But you know, I would say I would say that you know the printing press and the Gutenberg press and and and, and all those other things that came out with having uh, speed and repetition and be able to create books for the masses eventually uh, did create a, a spreading of, of information knowledge that we would see later on in the Enlightenment. Exactly. You know that that did pay for, pay it forward, yep. right? Exactly. So I think when more and more ideas became common knowledge, let's say, because everybody could get their hands on it, then you might say, hey, these two theories contradict each other. Let's go and find out which one's right. And if a scientist in the modern sense had a good idea, there was a much bigger chance of him being heard. But this was, you know, at least a century after, two centuries after the invention. So yeah, for a long time, you still had astrology and alchemy in their golden age with the printing press and telescopes already have been created. Okay, so those all those questions were basically from the Ask Historians one. There are many more. Like I said, there's over 100 in total. And if you're more interested to the, on the occult side of things, then um, 
Mr. Magic Alchemy did a, did a lot of had a lot of great answers and insights there. So I would highly recommend checking out that that AMA, and I'll, I'll link to it from the website. So we still have a couple of questions from the uh, history subreddit. Uh, ask me anything, and and uh, so yeah, let's. It's only it's only three three that I really picked out. Let's let's jump to those. Okay, let's go to number one. In conducting your study of the subject, I have no doubt at all that you ended up with coming across materials and scholars that are rather less than reliable. Let's just say that they're <laughs> That's putting it nicely yeah. sketchy. Yeah. <laughs> all right. How how would you ensure that the high standards are main, maintained? And what are the warning signs, the red flags, if you will? For which you look for when you're when you're doing your research, Travis. Yeah, so we've touched on this here and there. So we have a cutoff date, and that is the occult revival. Any source coming after that, I look at what its sources were, and better still, I have many many primary texts. So they're translated, but we have many many primary sources. Um, that that's my first kind of thing I go to. I am not a fan of Jung, so I don't look at his, but but that's after the occult revival cutoff date anyways. Um, Jung is actually really interesting. I don't want to put him down all the time. He has interesting theories. There's just no place for them here on this podcast. The thing is, is that there is a pretty consistent line from Aristotelian philosophy through Alexandrian, Persian alchemists to medieval alchemists in Europe, um, going basically, basically all the way without any gaps to people like Newton, okay? I know this path um, from primary sources. If something falls too far out of their theories on alchemy, um, I, I look into it a little bit more. So, uh, yeah, it's 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 hard to um, say exactly what I what I include and don't include. But um, if I have a hunch that it doesn't follow that path, then I'll look into it. Like if the date's just way off, uh, I'll look into it and say, okay, so where did this come from? Was this a much later interpretation? Or we did look at. Neoplatonism and Hermeticism and Kabbalah. So it's not like we're just after the, the history of science, but we're after everything that made these alchemists tick. For instance, when I'm researching, right now I'm researching Kabbalah, and I knew basically nothing about it. So instead of reading Wikipedia, which is a you know tertiary source, um, I actually I have to go back and I'm, I'm reading the Zohar cover to cover. And is I that light reading, by the way? Um, it's interesting. It's... Um, good stuff. It, it it goes deep down the rabbit hole here and there. So does Hermeticism. But when I read the Zohar and then I have a basic opinion, then I can look at other sources and say, okay, yeah, you know that that sounds familiar, or boy, I've never heard that before. Where did that come from? And then I can I can try to dig into that a little deeper. Obviously, if I'm just looking for dates or you know some some really basic stuff, Wikipedia is pretty good at that. But but clearly, you know, you can't just go to Wikipedia and make a make a, you know, some, any kind of historical statement whatsoever. But yeah, if we're double checking stuff or um, if we want to get kind of round out the, the podcast or something, sure. If, if there's something, some episodes take a lot longer than others because I'm a huge history of science fan, but when it goes into mysticism, uh, it's interesting stuff, but I just got to read up on it more because it's, it's just not on the top of my head at all. So yeah, it, it, I have a lot of kooky books at home <laughs> that I'm trying to get through because in your fancy library in my fancy library because right. um, yeah, there's just no way around it. You just yeah, got to got to read the basics. Well, Travis, you mentioned that uh, some some of our listeners you know try to go into wiki and and uh, find it coming up a little disenchanted with with some of the, with some of the information that's just not there. And our next listener's question has that same problem. Uh, quote, my first exposure to the Aurora Consurgence was when someone showed me some of the amazing watercolors that can be found in it, which is 
probably my favorite of, of all of that. Uh, my attempts to discover what the book is actually about have been less successful. However, as the wiki article is less sparse on detail and the material, I have been able to find uh, I have been able to otherwise find uh, some really good information um, uh, that are that is far too sincerely mystical for me. Uh, what's going on with this remarkable text? Can you explain a little bit more about the originality uh, of thought that goes into this, and does it have any contain any uh, connection with St. Thomas Aquinas? And again, that's okay, a question so, of focusing on Aurora Consurgence. Yeah, I, I kind of copped out on this answer, I'll, I'll be honest, because um, I don't know a whole lot about this pseudo-Aquinas in particular. Um, and basically, what I answered was, okay, you know, we've dealt with pseudo-Democritus, pseudo-Gaber, and many pseudo-Austenese, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so I kind of went on to explain that, you know, sometimes it's, it's just some anonymous person that signs their name as someone famous, and only after, like, Sudor Gaber was 500 years later, did people start putting two and two together that they were two different people, right? Um, with Pseudo Democritus, he came 500 later after Democritus, or or more, 700 years. Um, so I think that what these people have in common, especially the Austenese and, and Gabers and you know Pseudo Democriti, um, is that the people wanted to believe that Aquinas wrote it. So it was even if they suspected it was not him. It is a rare manuscript. It is something worth money, and it would be worth more money if it was written by him. So it's just kind of people wanted this stuff to be true, right? So let's imagine you find something written, a a manuscript, a brand new undiscovered manuscript from Shakespeare. Some stakeholders benefit if it's really him. So no matter if it is or not, some people are going to try and convince others that it's the forgery is real, or maybe it is real, I don't know. So one thing that comes into this is that there were just less skeptics back then. Now, the skeptics skeptics did exist on all of these almost right away. Some people, um, like with Nicholas Flamel, people instantly said, you know what, that's not, that doesn't make any sense. You know, th- that doesn't quite add up. Nicholas Flamel wasn't an alchemist, he was just a bookseller. People instantly voiced that opinion, but it did not, really get spread. I mean, you know, we don't have the forms that we have today or even in the 19th century with, you know, mass printing and all that kind of thing. So, I mean, they had mass printing, but not as cheap as it was in the 19th century. So they did not find out that Pseudo-Gaber was Pseudo-Gaber until the 18th, 19th century, um, in some cases even later, when they found out that the Latin versions did not have an original Arabic, for instance. You know, without knowing a whole lot about the Aurora Consurgence, uh, it looks really interesting. I think it's something that I, I would like to look into. But we've covered many pseudos, and it's, um, yeah, it, it's, you know, if you, if you we, we even cover them in the same podcast together, like the, the pseudo along with the original. And sometimes it's just very hard to tell who wrote what and, you know, where that line stops of, of what they didn't write anymore. But, you know, take that with a huge grain of salt, Say you know, that, that that book, The Aurora Consurgence, was probably not written by Aquinas, and that it probably doesn't fit a lot. With, I mean, he just wasn't an alchemist. Um, same with Nicholas Flamel and his works. They weren't written by him. They were written 150 years later, at, at best. Um, so, yeah, we have, you know, Albertus Magnus, same thing. Uh, it's just he had this reputation after his death. And um, I, just from kind of looking into this for a couple of minutes, I, I would say it kind of fits the bill as one of those. Now, to end tonight's uh, question um, that we've talked about with Reddit, uh, this is, 
ends on a little bit more of a lighter note, and it kind of expands upon your your, your response a little bit about Nicholas Flamel. Uh, if you remember how uh, in the first Harry Potter movie, Travis, that Nicholas Flamel was a, a pretty important part of the last third of the movie, um, uh, especially when we talk about the the uh, the Sorcerer's Stone, right? So you know we say the Philosopher's Stone, they say the Sorcerer's Stone. I mean it's, it was kind of a combination of those two. But this question has to deal more with the pop culture aspect of alchemy, um, and the question goes like this: uh, Has the success of so many different children's or young adult series based on magic in recent decades have a positive or pernicious impact on the popular study and apprehension of of, uh, of alchemy? Um, and this person is basically thinking about what we just mentioned about the Harry Potter series. Um, even though there are plenty of other such things out there, uh, this particular listener, I think, voices for a lot of people Didn't saying that th- this uh, these series for young adults have really kind of sparked a new energy for the study of alchemy. Yeah, and didn't we talk about things like Full Metal Alchemists and those? Yeah, the graphic novels. Yeah, we talked about the some cartoons of the, and yeah, stuff. Yeah, exactly. Um, well, you know, this is a good question because this is actually – this is from one of the moderators of Ask Historians, so he's he's uh, he knows his stuff and his field, and I think that this is a lot of um, this is a question that that historians or even just history buffs like ourselves ponder is that um, there's a lot of falsities out there, and especially things that get fictionalized. I mean, Nicholas Flamel is way large, you know, the singular most famous alchemist of all time. And he wasn't an alchemist. Exactly. There's that small detail <laughs> yeah. that he had nothing to do with alchemy whatsoever. And so, you know, does this, does this hurt? D- does it, you know, does it benefit in somehow, uh, in some way? And I think um, the point I would like to make is that it, it absolutely benefits in the sense that you get a wider audience. So what would people know about alchemy if none of this existed? So what people do think they know is that Nicholas Flamel invented the Philosopher's Stone, and he's probably still around, uh, the Elixir of Life. And um, that like Full Metal Alchemist, there's something that kept popping up is that, that when you do a transmutation, you have to have the same weight and materials before and after. So that's obviously fiction, because why would you have the same same kind of gold before that you had after no you're trying to create something from nothing so um maybe i maybe i watched that show wrong it's it's a cartoon but the the thing is is that um and then you you mix a lot of stuff in there like sorcery and and other stuff and it is interesting because i think especially in, in the sense of alchemy the truth is stranger than fiction so there really were people that believed in magic like for instance theurgy or thaumaturgy and and um, even, you know, astrology and that kind of thing. And they did believe in this, and they believed that they were creating gold with God's help, or, you know, and, and that's, you know, kind of a theological magic happening. So there's, you know, just the, the even the story of the charlatans, like we talk about them, because it's interesting to hear the methods they used, how they ripped off some rich guy, or, you know, it's it's still history, it happened. And so if we, if these fictionalized versions can spark someone's interest and say, oh man, how did, you know, what were alchemists really like? And then they go off and do their research, maybe find this uh, fine podcast here and give it a listen. And then, you know, they kind of figure out that, oh man, that's actually, you know, there's the history of science there. It's, it's really interesting stuff. And like we said, truth is probably stranger than fiction in a lot of these cases. So... I, I would have to uh, agree with you, Travis. I, I think that um, as amateur historians as we both are, 
with this. I, we love history, and I think we want to share this this um, interest in history with other people that that may pass on, you know, through through grade school, high school, and college, and kind of in a sleepy state because their professors were or teachers were lacking, and uh, they never get back into it. They consider it a boring subject. And so, whatever brings you back to the history table. Um, there's always a place for you. And, and I think that if it's something fiction or if it's pop culture or if it's just a flash in the pan, an anniversary date or something that sparks books to be made or uh, interest again, uh, I think that's nothing but good stuff for people to get back into the history realm. And uh, I think we do that in both our shows, Travis, and I think that uh, our listeners are, are thirsty for it. I think we're always welcoming new listeners for the, those same reasons. Uh, yeah, I'll tell you, I, I loved chemistry in high school, but I would have loved it way more if my professor would have used some of Al-Razi's method to like make gold in front of our eyes. Which is a great... That, I just, I wonder how, how toxic and... <laughs> like you couldn't use any of the mercury uh, recipes, but, but he, had, he had several. And uh, yeah, some of them just were pretty easy to do and you could definitely do in a, in a high school lab. So yeah, I mean, to, to spark someone interested in that way and say, okay, here we're doing chemistry, but check out where this came from and what these people used to do with I their bushy beards. I think that would be a great thing for a high school teacher to, to do, to, to spark interest with kids, sure. is, is to mention something that happened 500, 600 years ago, saying, hey, this is that old. Let me tell you what really brought this experiment to life in the first time, and we're going to reenact it today. And that's something, actually, we'll probably try on our show, right? We're going to make phosphorus, boys. <laughs> we're going to boil our own urine. No, no, that's not what we're going to do. I might get fired for that, so don't do that, folks. Uh, but I, I think on this show, we have a lot of, a lot of plans for the future for, uh, for the history of alchemy, and one of them is to actually try to make gold on the show. It's coming together. I'm, I'm working out the recipe. Well, we're going to make sure it's, it's, that it's going to be right, right and ready for this. Because yeah. this is uh, something we've hyped up for the past six months. Well, there's yeah, because there's so many recipes. So uh, and how do you do it on, as as an auditory issue <laughs> via, via a podcast and not a video we podcast? Might, we might have to film it. We, we might, might have to put it on YouTube. Well, I don't yeah. know. We'll, we'll we'll figure that out. Um, all right. Well, that's there's many more questions. Basically, a hundred more questions. Um, there's a lot of interesting stuff there. I just I just kind of pick and chose, not quite at random, but uh, yeah, more or less just just some of the ones that that we maybe haven't covered in the show because a lot of these we have covered in the show at some other point. So, um, but we want to thank you to li- the listeners as well. I mean, it just, it's phenomenal to have so many listeners listening to this show and, um, you know, being really invested to either write us stuff on Reddit or send emails to Travis and myself. And, and, uh, we, we really appreciate your listenership. Yeah. I got to say getting, getting the feedback and getting the questions because if you have a question about it, then um, yeah, we might have some answers. So I, I think it's it's. Or we'll look for them. One of the two. <laughs> yeah, because because we we might actually be able to tell you exactly what you want to know, and not just hope that the next episode covers what you want to hear. So um, yeah, if we get your feedback, we'll definitely try to do a couple of things in your direction. So thanks for listening. Thanks very much. You've been listening to the History of Alchemy podcast with Travis Dow and Pete Coleman. For more information about this episode, other episodes, and other information about alchemy, alchemists, and related subjects, visit historyofalchemy.com. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, review, and don't forget to rate us. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, ideas, and corrections to podcast at historyofalchemy.com or get in touch via Facebook on the History of Alchemy podcast page or Twitter at Alchemy Podcast. Tune in to our sister podcast all about the Czech Republic, Bohemican, which is also available on iTunes or on bohemican.com. Until next time on the History of Alchemy podcast, thank you for listening.
This is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc.